Chapter Two, Part Three of Our Village, Volume One by Mary Russell Mitford. Read by Anne Fletcher, Hobart, two thousand and twenty. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Our Village, Volume One Walks in the Country, Part Three Violeting. March twenty seventh. It is a dull grey morning with a dewy feeling in the air. Fresh, but not windy, cool, but not cold the very day for a person newly arrived from the heat, the glare, the noise and the fever of London, to plunge into the remotest labyrinths of the country and regain the repose of mind, the calmness of heart, which has been lost in that great Babel. I must go violating. It's a necessity, and I must go alone. The sound of a voice, even my Lizzie's, the touch of Mayflower's head, even the bounding of her elastic foot, would disturb the serenity of feeling which I am trying to recover. I shall go quite alone, with my little basket, twisted like a beehive, which I love so well because she gave it to me, and kept sacred to violets and to those whom I love, and I shall get out of the high road the moment I can. I would not meet anyone just now, even of those whom I best like to meet. Oh, is not that group, a gentleman on a blood horse, a lady keeping pace with him so gracefully and easily, see how prettily her veil waves in the wind created by her own rapid motion, and that gay, gallant boy on the gallant white Arabian, curvetting at their side, but ready to spring before them at every instant? Is not that chivalrous-looking party Mr. and Mrs. M. and dear B? Oh, no, the servant is in a different livery. It's some of the ducal family and one of their young Etonians. I may go on. I shall meet no one now, for I have fairly left the road and am crossing the Lee by one of those wandering paths amidst the gorse and the heath and the low broom which the sheeps and lambs have made, a path turfy, elastic, timey and sweet, even at this season. We have the good fortune to live in an unenclosed parish, and may thank the wise obstinacy of two or three sturdy farmers, and the lucky unpopularity of a ranting madcap lord of the manor, for preserving the delicious green patches, the islets of wilderness amidst cultivation, which form perhaps the peculiar beauty of English scenery. The common that I am passing now, the Lee, as it is called, is one of the loveliest of these favoured spots. It is a little sheltered scene, retiring, as it were, from the village, sunk amidst higher lands, hills would be almost too grand a word, edged on one side by one gay high road, and intersected by another and surrounded by a most picturesque confusion of meadows, cottages, farms and orchards, with a great pond in one corner, unusually bright and clear, giving a delightful cheerfulness and daylight to the picture. The swallows haunt that pond, so do the children. There's a merry group around it now, I've seldom seen it without one. Children love water, clear, bright, sparkling water. It excites and feeds their curiosity. It is motion and life. The path that I am treading leads to a less lively spot, to that large, heavy building on one side of the common, whose solid wings, jutting out far beyond the main body, occupy three sides of a square, and give a cold, shadowy look to the court. 
On one side is a gloomy garden, with an old man digging in it, laid out in straight dark beds of vegetables, potatoes, cabbages, onions and beans, all earthy and mouldy as a newly dug grave. Not a flower or flowering shrub, not a rose-tree or currant bush, nothing but for sober melancholy use. Oh, how different from the long irregular slips of the cottage gardens, with their gay bunches of polyanthuses and crocuses, their wallflowers sending sweet odours through the narrow casement, and their gooseberry trees bursting into a brilliancy of leaf, whose vivid greenness has the effect of a blossom on the eye. Oh, how different! On the other side of this gloomy abode is a meadow of that deep, intense emerald hue, which denotes the presence of stagnant water, surrounded by willows at regular distances, and like the garden, separated from the common by a wide, moat-like ditch. That is the parish workhouse. All about it is solid, substantial, useful, but so dreary, so cold, so dark. There are children in the court, and yet all is silent. I always hurry past that place as if it were a prison. Restraint, sickness, age, extreme poverty, misery, which I have no power to remove or alleviate, these are the ideas, the feelings which the sight of those walls excites. Yet perhaps, if not certainly, they contain less of that extreme desolation than the morbid fancy is apt to paint. There will be found order, cleanliness, food and clothing, warmth, refuge for the homeless, medicine and attendance for the sick, rest and sufficiency for old age, and sympathy, the true and active sympathy which the poor show to the poor, for the unhappy. There may be worse places than a parish workhouse, and yet I hurry past it. The feeling, the prejudice, will not be controlled. The end of the dreary garden edges off into a close sheltered lane, wandering and winding like a rivulet in gentle sinuosities, to use a word once applied by Mr Wilberforce to the Thames at Henley, amidst green meadows all alive with cattle, sheep and beautiful lambs in the very spring and pride of their tottering prettiness or fields of arable land, more lively still with troops of stooping bean-setters, women and children, in all varieties of costume and colour, and ploughs and harrows, with their whistling boys and steady carters, going through with a slow and plodding industry the main business of this busy season. What work bean-setting is! What a reverse of the position assigned to man to distinguish him from the beasts of the field! Only think of stooping for six, eight, ten hours a day, drilling holes in the earth with a little stick, and then dropping in the beans one by one. They are paid according to the quantity they plant, and some of the poor women used to be accused of clumping them, that is to say, of dropping more than one bean into a hole. It seems to me, considering the temptation, that not to clump is to be at the very pinnacle of human virtue. Another turn in the lane, and we come to the old house standing amongst the high elms, the old farmhouse, which always, I don't know why, carries back my imagination to Shakespeare's days. It is a long, low, irregular building, 
with one room at an angle from the house covered with ivy, fine, white-veined ivy, the first floor of the main building projecting and supported by oaken beams, and one of the windows below, with its old casement and long narrow panes, forming the half of a shallow hexagon. A porch with seats in it, surmounted by a pinnacle, pointed roofs and clustered chimneys complete the picture. Alas, it is little else but a picture. The very walls are crumbling to decay under a careless landlord and a ruined tenant. Now a few yards farther, and I reach the bank. Oh, I smell them already. Their exquisite perfume steams and lingers in this moist, heavy air. Through this little gate, and along the green south bank of this green wheat-field, and they burst upon me, the lovely violets in tenfold loveliness. The ground is covered with them, white and purple, enamelling the short dewy grass, looking but the more vividly coloured under the dull leaden sky. There they lie by hundreds, by thousands. In former years I have been used to watch them from the tiny green bud till one or two stole into bloom. They never came on me before in such sudden and luxuriant glory of simple beauty, and I do really owe one pure and genuine pleasure to feverish London. How beautifully they're placed, too, on this sloping bank, with the palm branches waving over them, full of early bees, and mixing their honeyed scent with the more delicate violet odour. How transparent and smooth and lusty are the branches, full of sap and life! And there, just by the old mossy root, is a superb tuft of primroses, with a yellow butterfly hovering over them, like a flower floating on the air. What happiness to sit on this tufty knoll and fill my basket with the blossoms! What a renewal of heart and mind! To inhabit such a scene of peace and sweetness is again to be fearless, gay and gentle as a child. Then it is that thought becomes poetry, and feeling religion. Then it is that we are happy and good, oh, that my whole life could pass so, floating on blissful and innocent sensation, enjoying in peace and gratitude the common blessings of nature, thankful above all for the simple habits, the healthful temperament which render them so dear. Alas, who may dare expect a life of such happiness? but I can at least snatch and prolong the fleeting pleasure, can fill my basket with pure flowers and my heart with pure thoughts, can gladden my little home with their sweetness, can divide my treasures with one, a dear one, who cannot seek them, can see them when I shut my eyes and dream of them when I fall asleep. End of chapter 2, part 3